This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Matthew Wright. Uh, Matthew's an attorney from Tennessee, and he's really on the cutting edge on trucking cases, and not just on how to sue the trucking company, but other parties who may bear responsibility. I heard Matt speak at a conference in Maui, at an AHA conference, and I realized there are so many cases I've seen before where I thought there was just 750000 or a million dollars of insurance, but you know, two or three people got killed or someone got in a catastrophic injury, and there just wasn't enough money to go around. And Matt blew my mind because there's like these other big companies out there that are actually responsible for the transportation, but they're hiding their role and they're hiding their liability. And Matt's going to teach us how to find it and how to actually get those uh, clients' compensation that need it. So I've learned a lot from Matt. I hope you will, too. This week on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have Tennessee lawyer Matt Wright. Uh, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're out here in Maui at the AAJ Winter Convention. It's a beautiful view to sit here and look at the waves, see a whale every now and then, and talk about trucking law. I couldn't picture a better view. Look right there. There's a whale. There are. We've seen Sorry. several while we're here. That's fantastic. They're beautiful creatures. But right now, we're going to unfortunately have to go and talk a little bit about trekking law, which I guess you and I both like talking about. I love talking about it. I'll talk your ear off, so go okay. ahead. So first of all, I guess what we're going to talk about today, if, let me make sure I have it right, is let's say you have a case with horrible injuries or death, and the trucking company is a little bitty company with only minimum insurance. Who else might have been involved in this and who else might be responsible? Am I right? That's absolutely right. You know, unfortunately, when clients come to us, um, I'm sure you've had the same experience. A lot of times when you take a look at the case, the trucking company is a really small trucking company. It may have two or three trucks. And there are many thousands of trucking companies that are that small across the United States. And they have minimal policies. A lot of people are shocked to learn that they only have to carry $750,000 in insurance. And if that's the only party that's involved, that's the only insurance, that company's not going to have any assets that you can collect a judgment on. So it doesn't really uh, make economic sense for the family that's suffered a tragic loss to have us go pursue a judgment against that small company. So a lot of times, as I'm sure you've had the experience of looking back at the documents in your cases, you can look to other parties. And sometimes you're going to find what's called a broker, and other times you're going to find what's called a shipper and if, if it's a sophisticated shipper they can be liable too. My particular experience has is, is been unique in a few cases that I've handled recently in that I found out that there's a, a business model that's common in the industry and it took me a long time to understand how it all works. But I've come to the conclusion uh, through doing in, investigations in these cases for the last several years I figured out how the cargo flows from the shipper to ultimately the receiver, but how is it that these small trucking companies are getting loads from these large shipping companies? 
And uh, you know what I found is really interesting. And so, what do you want to know about it? What can I share with you? Well, I want to kind of take a step back. And yeah. so, basically, what we're doing is we're gonna you're gonna share so that our listeners if they have a case where there's not enough insurance in the mom and pop trucking company to find out about the other parties who may have been involved in the load and it's not obvious and may have liability and you may turn your $750,000 case into a $2 million, $5 million, $10 million case. Am, am I right? You are correct. And that's never a conversation you want to have with a family who's just lost a, yeah. a, you know, a father, a son, a daughter, or they're facing a lifetime of medical care. A really hard conversation that sometimes you have to have is I may not be able to find more insurance they're telling me there's only a million dollar policy, but I'm gonna really hold their feet to the fire. I'm gonna do everything I can to find either another party that's responsible for causing this injury or this death, or I'm gonna find more insurance. And so I, I will always want to, in every case, for the sake and benefit of the client, to make every effort to find out who was involved with the shipment of this load and what did they do or not do that may have contributed to cause you know, the horrific damages. And so that's how we approach the cases. And I want to be perfectly honest. I'm, I have a very selfish reason for wanting you on the program today. And that's, I thought that I understood this stuff. I've done broker cases, uh, been pretty successful in them, thought I knew what I was doing. And I had a case that I thought there's nothing there. I mean, we, we've looked, there is no broker case based on what I understood. And we were ready to let it go. Uh, and then I talked to you at a conference a few months ago and you told me there was a theory and uh, of course we're going to co-counsel with you now on the case but I'm like well I want to learn from this man so I'm being selfish because not only do I think you have value to the listeners but I'm hoping to get something out of this conversation today too that it's going to help me in my practice so uh, just forgive me in advance I'm trying to sponge off your knowledge and uh, learn from you well I'm, I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot from you too in this conversation and I always do at all these conferences and that's the great thing about being able to be with fellow trial lawyers at conferences like this. And so the, I think the defense ultimately is going to try to claim that loads were truly brokered. In other words, company A, a shipper, uses a broker to arrange the transport to company B, who might be the mom and pop shop that only has two or three trucks at a minimal you know, million dollar policy. And as we discussed before, if you have several deaths or even one death, a million dollars is wholly inadequate to cover and compensate that family for their losses. Right. And, and you're using some terms, and, you know, these are terms that I'm going to confess until a couple of years ago. I didn't fully know what they meant. Uh, so I, I kind of want to go through the scenario, and that way we know what everyone's called. So when, yeah. you know, when people are listening, because there's going to be people listening to this who never done a trucking case. Okay. Um, and so we want to be helpful on this. And so... We've got a, a load, let's say you have a mom-and-pop trucking company is hauling uh, Chick-fil-A chicken, uh, piece of chicken they're going to cook to a Chick-fil-A store. Uh, so who is the shipper in this case? Okay, so in that case, the way that you're going to find out who the shipper is is by going through the documents. Okay. And so the first thing you typically want to look at is what's called a bill of lading. What's a bill of lading? Well, the, the bill of lading is a document that, in theory, should pass from where the load is being picked up to the motor carrier and the driver. They have to sign off for it when they receive that cargo, and that creates an obligation on the part of the trucking company to deliver it. And so 
There are other ways that that obligation can be created too through computer systems and what are called tender of loads and acceptance of loads. But the first thing that you want to get usually is the bill of lading. Then there's also contracts that are going to exist between the parties that will also define who is a shipper, who is a broker, and who is a motor carrier or other, in other words, a trucking company. But, but basically, I want to see if I understand this, and I, I know there's a regulatory definition, but the shipper is the company or person who's paying money to have their goods shipped from point A to point B. Yes, and you can see it done one of two ways. There probably are more, but these are the most common. The shipper can either contract directly with a broker to handle the brokerage of the cargo on their behalf, and they also use... Larger companies often use a company, what's called a third-party logistics provider, which is a broker, but they do a lot more than that. They do all of their logistics services. They screen all the trucking companies, make sure that they can meet their criteria. And then you also have the broker who earns a commission for arranging to find a trucking company who will haul the cargo on behalf of that shipper or the 3PL, and so the third-party logistics provider. So yeah. That, this stuff took me a long time to figure out. I'll be honest. I'm uh, so I always thought that the shipper, let's say Chick Fil A, wants to get nuggets from their warehouse to their store. They would just hire a trucking company to do the load, and that would be one way a shipper can just hire a motor carrier. But you said that there's other entities that sometimes the shippers will turn to. Exactly. So. Uh, a lot of businesses decide that they want to focus on what their core business is. So if you're a restaurant company, you want to focus on providing food services. You're not a transportation company, so you're going to outsource your transportation needs to another company who's going to handle all of your logistics. And so that's what's called a third-party logistics provider. And they basically just take over all the transportation needs of that company, and larger companies commonly do that. And so the third-party logistics provider is going to do several things. One of the most important tasks and what's pertinent to our conversation is they're going to locate and pre-screen a number of different trucking companies to make sure that they meet all the safety criteria so they would be approved to ship on behalf of that shipper. And so once they have approved that, they go on the list and they are regularly updated to make sure they're still in compliance with those terms. And if they're approved, they usually pre-negotiate the rates of the cargo. And then when they have a load that needs to be shipped, they're going to contact that trucking company and say, hey, we have a load that needs to be moved from uh, Horse Cave, Kentucky to Louisville, Texas, for example. And here's the rate. And they offer the load to them. And the trucking company either accepts it or rejects it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And I guess one of the problems there is if the third-party logistics or broker is being paid, let's say, $2,500 to do the load, and they're not going to haul it themselves, they may have an economic incentive to find the cheapest company they can find. Yeah, and, and you picked up on something because this really is, is the heart of the business model in the transportation industry now because there is an economic incentive for the motor carrier or the trucking company not to reject loads from that 3PL or from that shipper. And in fact, I've found in cases that the shippers or the 3PL will have a formula and they grade the motor carrier. And so if they start rejecting loads, that motor carrier's grade is going to go down. 
And so they're not going to get as many future loads if they start rejecting a whole lot of loads. So there's an incentive that's created not only for profit, but also not to miss out on the opportunity for future cargo from that shipper. So the, sh the motor carriers accept as many loads as they possibly can, even if they can't really handle them with their own equipment, they're still going to accept it. Mm -hmm. And so the profit that you talked about, you wanted to learn a little bit more about the profit. What I've found in the cases that I've looked at is that the trucking companies are accepting these loads and telling the shippers that they're going to haul them for them. And actually going so far as to tell the shipper, you know, we're using our equipment and our drivers and we're going to you know, be compliant with the terms of our contract. But then they're turning around and they're going to be paid, you know, say $2,500 by the shipper to haul this load. And then they turn around and do something where they use what's called a load board, which is really just a glorified internet website where anyone with a password can go on that website and say you're a, a trucking company that's got two trucks or even an independent, independent operator, you can say, I'm willing to do haul that load for $1,500. Will you give it to me? And the trucking company will say yes, because they're going to earn $1,000 right there, the difference between what the small trucking company will haul the load for versus what they're being paid by the shipper to haul it. And so if you do that thousands of times per month, which in my experience these trucking companies are doing as part of their business model, you're looking at huge profits with what they think is very little risk. They're not using their own drivers. They're not using their own equipment. They're not even really notifying their insurance company that, hey, we've accepted this load and the, this other trucking company is going to haul it for us. So it's a very pervasive system and practice that's in place whereby these trucking companies, the large trucking companies who control the flow of cargo, are accepting the loads and then giving them to small trucking companies that haven't been properly screened and might be dangerous and jeopardizing public safety. Yeah. So I just want to make sure I, I get this straight because, you know, I mean, usually at a seminar when you're presenting this, you're putting up visuals. And even then, I'll be honest, it took me more than one time to get it. Uh, so I want to see if we can break it down. So there's the the model I thought existed before I really got into trucking, which is the shipper wants to get their goods delivered and the shipper hires the trucking company or what we call the motor carrier mm -hmm. directly. Yes. Then the shipper can say, hey, I don't want to have to be hiring a bunch of different motor carriers, you know, who, who runs which route. So I'm going to hire a, a broker or a third-party logistics company and say, these are the loads I need shipped. You find someone good to go do this for me. Right. But now there's a, another layer that you can have either the shipper hires a big trucking company or more likely the shipper gets the third-party logistics which then hires a big trucking company the big trucking company says yes we're going to haul the load but then they sub it out to another mom and pop company exactly so that they can pay them less and keep the difference that's exactly what they do okay and i want to kind of go now that we kind of have the, the situation set up i want to kind of go through the the different ways that different parties may be held liable okay so i want to start with the even the motor carrier, I, I see all the time, you know, it's, let's say we don't have a giant case. Let's say we have a case that's worth 250000 300000 we have a million-dollar policy, so we don't have to look at all these other complicated theories. But the trucking company will still say, you know, that driver is an independent contractor. They're an independent owner-operator. We're not liable uh, for, what, for their negligence. Does that work? It used to work. And here's what they would do. They would say... 
driver, go get your own operating authority, register with the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, and we're going to call you an independent owner. We're not going to own the truck. You're going to own the truck. And so, but you're going to haul our cargo for us. And so, if that driver was involved in a wreck under traditional tort law, the motor carrier could not be held liable for the acts of the independent contractor. That's black letter law. So there were lots of instances that happened where people were getting injured or killed and the trucking company would disavow any liability on that basis. And they got away with it for a long time until the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration implemented a regulation which says that if you are a motor carrier and you use an independent contractor, you are deemed to have control of that equipment and control of that driver and be responsible for it as if you owned that equipment and employed the driver. It doesn't matter what you call them. It doesn't matter how you pay them. You don't, the courts don't look at it like applying an IRS test to determine if this is an independent contractor or not. And so that caused, in my opinion, some changes in the industry whereby they have put another layer of what they think protects them from liability. Right. So but just for just say we only had the, the trucking company and their driver uh, under what they call the statutory employment doctrine, the trucking company is vicariously liable. They can't just say we're going to have 50 trucks, but they're each going to be a separate motor carrier, and we're not, you know, we're not going to put our whole fleet at risk if one of our truckers kills somebody. That doesn't work anymore. Exactly, and Congress, and I think the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration officials said that that's absurd. We need to change okay. that, and so it's clear you cannot do that anymore. Now I want to go again. Just get the. I want to go get another scenario. Let's say we just have a shipper. And the shipper is going to pick its own motor carrier. Let's just pick a simple case. Um, is there ever a point, a situation where a shipper could be liable if it hires a motor carrier and then that motor carrier hurts or kills somebody? The shipper can be held liable. Okay. Now, How? So, I mean, they're not driving. They're not their employees. And, and that's what most people are, are going to, uh, you know, at first instance think because they really had no say other than just contracting with this trucking company to haul their cargo. But especially in the instances of sophisticated shippers, maybe shippers that have transportation and logistics as part of their core operations. In fact, there was a case that uh, you and I both heard Rena Leiserman talking about today that involved Nestle Waters. And Nestle was a sophisticated entity. It regularly contracted with motor carriers. It had its own motor carrier authority. And even though it contracted with, an, in their case, uh, an independent contractor called Heil Logistics and Heil Transportation, they were still deemed at law to be potentially liable. It was a question of fact for the jury if they did proper due diligence in hiring that independent contractor. And, and the reason that is is because if you are a sophisticated entity, you should know better than to put a dangerous trucking company out on the road to haul your product. You can't just turn the blind eye to the fact that that dangerous trucking company and you knew or should have known was gonna get involved in a wreck. It, it increases the chance that harm is gonna happen and that's why the shipper can be held liable. 
So the answer to your question is yes. Now, the, if you want to look at the other side of the coin, just because legally an entity can be deemed negligent, in this case a shipper, doesn't mean a jury would necessarily agree with that. And I think in, in one of these earlier cases that we were discussing, the, the Heil Logistics case, the judge allowed the claim to go forward against the shipper, but ultimately the claim was dismissed simply because the fact that the jury did not appear through focus groups to be very receptive to going that far up the chain to hold a shipper accountable. I think there's at least, and I don't think it was a case necessarily that had a broker in there, but I think there's been at least one reported case holding a shipper liable. And that is the high logistics case. It's, oh, it is? Okay. It's Lindhart versus high logistics where Nestle moved for summary judgment and summary judgment was denied as to Nestle. And so, but the plaintiff voluntarily dismissed Nestle before trial and focused the okay. case on the broker and the motor carrier. So if we're looking for shipper liability, I guess I'm thinking from a case screening, lawyers got case in the office, who may I, might be liable on this? I guess when you're looking for a sophisticated shipper, so it would be like not mom and pop hiring one person to haul one load, but someone that is in the regular business of shipping goods. Yeah, or, or on the other hand, it also could be a shipper that's maybe not so sophisticated, but really just was negligent in how they contracted with the trucking company. And if, they, if there were clear signs that the trucking company was dangerous and they didn't use an intermediary like a broker to screen that trucking company for it, and it was, for example, out of service or it exceeded you know, key categories that would show an average person that this trucking company is dangerous, and they, did it, they took it upon themselves to clear that trucking company, then they should be held liable because that's a company that was dangerous that they should not have allowed to go out on the road. Okay, then the next step, and I think this is going to apply to, to multiple theories, but okay, let's say we have a, a shipper that would have a duty. They're, you know, they, for whatever, they're either sophisticated enough or it's an obvious enough situation where the shipper has a duty of reasonable care in selecting the motor carrier. What are these things we're looking at on the, that would make it negligent to hire this particular motor carrier? Well, so... I'll have to speak a little bit of legalese here because... Okay, I'm going to make you translate it, though. Okay, sure. <laughs> the, the courts are going to look at, um, you know, if you're in a jurisdiction that has adopted Section 411 of the Restatement Second of Torts, that speaks to, you know, basically what we would deem a negligent hiring claim. Right. And so, if, or a negligent selection claim. And so... If you're, if you're going to hire someone to do something that's potentially dangerous, like hauling 80,000 pounds of cargo down the highway you have to use reasonable care in selecting the independent contractor. Right. And so if you select an incompetent independent contractor, you can be held liable. And so... So it, what makes a trucking company incompetent or dangerous? Okay, so uh, there's really an easy way to figure it out. And so uh, anyone that has access to the Internet, which almost everyone that's a company these days should have access to the Internet, you can go onto a website and you can look at the safety record and the safety history of a truck company is publicly available. You can look at all of their citations. Now, if they have a lot of citations, that's going to be shown right there on that home screen when you type the name of the trucking company in there. And they also have what's called a safety rating. And you can have a, sa a satisfactory safety rating. You can be unrated, or you can have a conditional rated, or you can have your authority revoked. All of that is available readily right there on the internet. So let's take the easy one. If you don't even have authority, there's no way in heck you should hire that company. Right. 
And so you need to verify that the trucking company has an operating authority. But if they don't have an adequate safety record, and for example, a lot of the trucking cases are actually what's called unrated. They don't have any safety rating. I found out in my recent burger case, 80% of the motor carriers have never received a safety rating from the federal government. And, and the, That's hundreds of thousands of companies out there that have never had the, never been audited, never got a safety rating. And the reason that is is because the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration is so thinly staffed that there is no way they can get around and audit all of these different trucking companies. They just don't have the personnel to do it. And that underscores why it's so important for a sophisticated transportation company or shipper or broker to verify that this is a safe and compliant trucking company. And so that's where you start. So what are the kind of violations that you see typically that could give rise to a claim against the shipper? Well, the main things that we've seen is that you have, you know, back when they actually put the giant yellow exclamation point on the website, it was obvious who was dangerous. Now they've taken that off. The lobbyists went and and took off the easy, yeah. So, but they used to actually put the, you know, this is basically a dangerous company is telling you with literal huge yellow triangles that there are problems with this company because they are more dangerous than their peer group in certain safety areas. And, you know, that can be out of service for drivers. It can be out of service for the actual equipment itself. It can be that they've exceeded too many, um, you know, they've been cited for too many drivers being cited for driving while fatigued or over hours. Those are obvious safety issues that you want to look at and drug and alcohol policy violations. And then they also have what's called a crash indicator. And so there are five categories that you can look towards and evaluate the company. And so, but the the bottom line is if the company has a lot of violations and really no explanation for it, and you don't do any, as a shipper, any other due diligence to follow up to see if this is a safe trucking company, most of these entities are going to have some kind of internal policy. Here's what you're supposed to do, and that's industry standard. Here's what you're supposed to do if the trucking company is unrated. You have to follow up personally with them and have a representative from your company make sure that this trucking company that you're about to hire and put an 80,000-pound potentially deadly weapon out on the road, you've got to make sure that they've got a drug and alcohol policy and that they actually follow it. And that doesn't mean going to their facility and doing an audit. It just means communicating with the company and saying, hey, do you have a policy? Can you show us what it is? And how do you enforce it? If they can't answer those simple questions, then it's a question whether you should do business with them or not. Absolutely. And how about a conditional rating? Because sometimes you see like they've had a safety rating and they don't put them out of service, but they give them what's called a conditional rating. What does that mean? Well, conditional rating is, is I think it's misperceived because conditional rating, a lot of the defendants, you know, the brokers or, or the shippers who are hiring companies that are conditionally rated want to say, well, they weren't. Uh, they didn't have their authority revoked. They had a conditional rating, so it was okay for us to hire them. That's not correct. A conditional (laughs) rating is a very serious rating. That means their authority is about to be revoked if they don't correct a number of different problems that were found by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. I actually read the letter. I just finished drafting a complaint a couple days ago on a case where the day after the truck caused a wreck and killed my client's husband 
they got the uh, audit and were found to be conditional. And the letter actually said, you're getting conditional rating because you do not have the safety processes in place to ensure a safe operation of the trucking company in compliance with safety rules. I mean, it is a bad thing. Uh, and, and that's what they're going to get right before they, they get one last chance. And if they don't fix it, they're going to get their authority revoked. But the problem is, is that, you know, as we talked about before, the government agencies just don't have the time and the resources to go around and do this. So you, you typically see unrated a lot more than you see conditionally rated. And, you know, politically, there's a lot of pressure on them. I think that's one of the reasons they're so underfunded to not press the trucking industry too hard. Uh, and I think even when you have a satisfactory rating, I think you still look at it as a possible case because one, how, how long ago was that satisfactory rating? And two, if you ever actually look at an audit that got a, safe, a satisfactory rating, it'll be like you had nine drivers falsify their logs, you were not auditing them, you had all this stuff, but you agreed that you're going to do better, so we're going to go ahead and give you the satisfactory rating. And without ever going back and checking that they actually did it. And we've had cases where when we're suing the motor carrier, you know, we showed all the problems that were found, the promises they made to keep their satisfactory rating, and then three years later, those were not kept and we had the same violations. And, you know, it can get a jury mad. Uh, so. I, I would agree, and it should, because the industry, and by the industry, I mean, as we're talking about the shippers and the brokers, they want to say, well, they had a satisfactory rating, and you know, we verified that by going on the website, and that's all we had to do. That's really not an acceptable answer, because... There are other things that you should be looking at to ensure that this is a safe company. It really doesn't take a lot of effort to do that. And so you know, one of the things we're talking about before, develop your own policy. Develop your own policy that will make sure that this company has actually done what they said they're going to do. And a lot of people are shocked just from how easy it is to become a motor carrier. They, I think the perception is out there that if you have motor carrier authority, you have actually been screened by the government and undergone training, and you've been cleared, much like the way that you would get a professional license. You may have to pass a test to become a lawyer, pass a bar exam, and, and pass a background check and things like that that you and I had to go through to become lawyers. Trucking companies don't really have to do that. The government, as we said before, as because it's so thinly spread across so many different trucking companies, you have to fill out only what's called an application, an OP1 form. The, whoever wants to open the trucking company and get authority fills out that form, and they pledge to follow the rules, and they pledge that they're familiar with the rules, but that doesn't mean they actually are. So it's basically an honor system. And I've seen, at least on the Texaco, the Texaco, the Texas-Mexico border where I practice a lot, a lot of, there's these companies out there, they, they'll do your taxes, and they'll also, as a service, they'll fill out the paperwork for you and get you licensed as a motor carrier. And so, you know, I deposed trucking company owners that didn't know they, they didn't know what the regs were. They didn't even know they promised to follow them. I mean, it's incredible. They just knew they paid someone 500 bucks and they went and got them a license. Well, and, and that shows it's even more of a reason why these shippers and these brokers, it's mandatory that they do their own investigation into the background and safety history of these trucking companies because the government doesn't do that. That's, that's a misstatement when these trucking companies you know, claim that they're safe simply because they have operating authority. It means they could operate for months and not get caught. That just means they're lucky. Right. It, it doesn't mean that they're safe. 
And so I want to go, we've talked about shipper. Now, the broker, I guess, one way a broker can be liable is, I guess, even more than a shipper, since they're in the business of selecting motor carriers, they'd have that same duty of, of due care. Um, but there's other ways that a broker could be liable. Um, so the way that we talked about was if you hire an unsafe trucking company, you don't do your due diligence into checking the background and the safety history of that trucking company. So the the other ways that we have uh, looked at this is, you know, what I was talking about this morning, which is where the company is actually claiming that they brokered the loadout, but in reality it wasn't a true brokerage arrangement. They're just calling it a brokerage arrangement. They're saying that, you know, our motor carrier who we're doing, we're brokering this load for can't be held liable because this is a brokered load and our obligation ends at the point that we broker the load from this one motor carrier, the shipper to the other mom and pop motor carrier. And so what I've found in my practice and, and from clients that have hired me to investigate these claims is that it's not always the case that this was actually a brokered load. And a lot of times it can be the situation where a company that really controls a large amount of freight, like a large trucking company with operations all over the country, they, may, they usually have a large contract to ship cargo nationwide with a large retailer, a large restaurant chain, you know, any number of different industries they can do work for. They control that flow of cargo. The small companies don't control the flow of cargo. They rely on these big companies to get overflow loads and, and to get what they call load board loads from them. They're kind of at the mercy of these large companies. They can't go to a restaurant chain and say, hey, let us do your shipping for you. They've only got three trucks. They can't handle it. So they're, they're at the mercy of these larger trucking companies. And so the larger trucking companies will accept these loads as a motor carrier from the 3PL or from the shipper, and they agree to haul it. And that's where we get into the situation where they're going to claim, okay, well, we brokered this load to another company, to mom and pop, and we can't be held liable for it. But that's where the sham comes into play. This is a fraud. This is a fraud where they claim it's brokered, but it's ultimately their load because they accepted responsibility to haul it as the trucking company. And I, and I want to make sure I understand this distinction. So if they're truly a broker, then the theories of liability would be either a negligent selection of an independent contractor motor carrier or in some states, in some fact patterns, sometimes they've actually got an agency under a common law theory. There's a oh, Illinois yeah. appellate court. But you're talking about a situation when I see where the motor carrier they're saying they're the broker, but they're really the motor carrier. And so just like the trucking company that's actually hauling the load can't escape liability by claiming their driver is an independent contractor, they're vicariously liable because that driver is considered their driver because they're acting as a motor carrier. Exactly. So it gets you out of the having to prove that the other trucking company is unsafe. It gets you out of comparative fault amongst different parties and you know and it gets you to the joint and several liability vicarious liability making well, them meet the whole thing and and, and that's true and it, and it gets you to i think one thing that might be even more important than all that which is that is the truth of what this transaction is the transaction is you're looking at the large motor carrier who accepts this load under their motor carrier authority and then writing with the 3pl they cannot now go back and claim that they're anything other than a motor carrier at the time that they accept that load. 
And that's why the, the regulations were written broadly to encompass not only the situation where a driver is called an independent contractor and the motor carrier wants to disclaim liability, but it all, I, I believe that they were, when, this, when these regulations were written, that they were written foreseeing that they might try to get around a result that they didn't like and you know, use a broker as an intermediary. So the regulations are broad enough under this statutory employment doctrine to deem the company liable for the acts of that independent contractor. And so how do we tell? I mean, we get a case, you know, we, all we know you know is horrible carnage. We've got a little mom and pop company. And I guess we like how in the world is this little mom and pop company with a horrible safety record hauling for this huge, you know, huge shipper? How do they get the load? So we want to find out is this company that was the intermediary between the shipper and the company actually hauling the load, were they acting as a motor carrier, were they acting as a broker? What do we do to find that out? So that used to be a lot harder than it was. And I think a lot of the courts have created what I consider to be bad law because they really focus on the actual control of the truck. And that goes to your question you asked me about before. Another way that you can prove liability is did you exercise control over this shipment over the truck or the driver and so uh, a lot of times the courts say well you didn't have actual control over how the trucker was driving the truck so you can't be held liable as a, another motor carrier as the shipper you didn't have enough control over it. you didn't have physical control over the, the truck you didn't own the truck and so uh, basically we're talking about another form of control it's control as a matter of law and so the statutory employment doctrine says, regardless of whether you own this truck, you are considered at law responsible for the acts of that driver. If you're acting as a motor carrier. Yes. So how do we figure that out? So how you figure that out is you no longer go through this analysis that I was talking about before, which is, okay, are you requiring that the driver have periodic check calls? Are you telling him what time to be there or what time to pick up the load forms of control. You're going through this whole analysis that created a lot of bad law. All, all you really need to figure out after a new law was implemented is what did you represent in the contract, the authority you were providing transportation or service as, which authority? So what is the name of the document that we need to ask for and look at? So there's something called in, in cases where a large motor carrier has a contract with a shipper with a 3PL, you're going to look for the transportation service agreement. Okay. And there's a law that went into effect in 2012. What's that called? That's called MAP 21, and its citation is 49 U.S.C. 13901, subsection C. And uh, what changed in that is subsection C was added to that law. And to me, this is one of the most important modifications in the last few years in the whole transportation industry. And it, it serves the effect of improving public safety and furthering the mission of the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration of taking bad truck companies off the road. And how it does that, it says that each company that's regulated must specify in writing under which authority they are providing that service. So in other words, you have to say in the contract, are you a shipper? And these are things we talked about before. Are you a shipper? Are you a broker or are you a motor carrier? Which authority are you using this as? So it takes away all the ambiguity and you specify what you are doing. 
So when the company, the large motor carrier says, all right, I'm providing services under our motor carrier authority, and it doesn't say anything about providing them under a brokerage authority, they can't later come back into court and say, well, we're not really a motor carrier, even though we put it in a contract, we're really a broker. It doesn't work like that. The law was intended to eradicate all of these ambiguities and not leave people in the dark that have been injured or killed as who the true motor carrier is. This law defines what your role is. And in the cases I've seen, the contracts with the large motor carriers, one broker, it wouldn't make any sense for one broker to hire another broker, just do my job for me. They're hiring someone to haul the cargo for them. And, and they often pay a, a better price than they can get from a mom and pop broker because they want to get that big motor carrier that's reliable, that has safety processes in place. And so if they're hiring them, that motor carrier agrees to ship, to be the, the, the to carry the goods, to transport the goods as a motor carrier, it's just not fair for them to say, well, we subbed it off to someone else who's a fly-by-night company. Exactly. And, and the reason we know that is not right is because they never tell the shipper that they're not hauling it. In fact, throughout the whole movement of the cargo, they're periodically calling and communicating with the shipper saying, we are hauling your load. Your load will be there. Our driver will be there. And in fact, they're instructed to conceal the fact that someone else is hauling it for them. All the communications have to be from large motor carrier to the shipper or 3PO. So they don't let the actual driver or the company that's paying the driver, they don't even let them talk to the customer because they don't want the, the motor carrier that's pretending to be a broker doesn't want the customer knowing what they're doing. They prohibit it. In fact, they, they have contracts that specify to the truck driver that you can never call the shipper. You can never call the 3PO. You have to call us. And so they don't want the cat out of the bag that, they're, that this trucking company is not giving the benefit of the bargain of what they paid for, which was a safe, compliant trucking company with up-to-date modern equipment, safety policies. And what they're really getting in reality is and oftentimes a, a trucking company with junked equipment that's been salvaged and rebuilt, bald tires and a driver and you know, driving while impaired or intoxicated. And... Uh, you know, often driving over hours just to try to make ends meet because, you know, that truck driver is getting their load pay garnished to pay for off his truck. And so I guess the, the big picture is if a lawyer gets a case come in their office where you have a small trucking company, not enough insurance, horrible damages, most of the time that small company is not getting its own loads. There's going to be someone else in the middle. There's almost always going to be another party involved, either a broker or a shipper, or as we are finding as of recently, because it's the industry practice, a lot of times there's another motor carrier involved. And sometimes these are really big motor carriers if they're getting these kind of loads, aren't they? Almost all the time it's a big motor carrier. And so you're going from having a $750 or $1 million of insurance to you know, $50 million, $90 million, $100 million in insurance. Yes. And so that's why it's important to look for all that stuff because in my view and probably yours too, Michael, if you come in and you represent that you're a trucking lawyer and you tell your client, I'm taking your case and you recommend to them that you settle the case for a million dollars and you haven't gone through and ruled out that there's another party out there, you've really done a disservice to your client and not done them justice. Absolutely. And, and you've probably committed malpractice. And honestly, another way to look at it, if you're trying to build a practice as a trucking lawyer, and you reach out to other lawyers and say, look, if you have a case where there's only 750 only a million, bring it to me. 
you know, if that's all there is, I don't, I won't charge you anything, but let me look. And, you know, you'll find people that, you know, I've, I, that's been my experience. People that were about to take the money say, hey, this might be a five or $10 million case. There might be someone else. Most of the time, they'll gladly, because they have no idea how to do it, they will gladly share that case with you, especially if you're willing to, you know, say, look, you only have to pay me if I can find something else. Yeah, um, and that's typically what, I don't, really don't get involved in a case, and it's probably you don't either, unless you can add some real value to it. And so if there, if it's a catastrophic injury and the, and the other lawyers being told that it's a million-dollar policy, uh, there's no reason for me to try to go in and, and take the case over and try to get the million dollars. The only th way I can add value is to determine if there's more money that can be found for the benefit of the client. And so sometimes, not all the time can there be, but the majority of the time you can at least find a responsible party that the facts look like they didn't do something that they should have done. And so if I can find that other party by going through the documents, and by going through and back-chaining how this whole thing happened, who put it into action, who made the decisions to hire the drug company, how did it happen, and what responsibility did they take on, then, yeah, we can, we can add value to that. We can come in and let the lawyer remain the, the liaison with the client and take you know, um, the lead as much as they want, and we'll just help out in, in that aspect of determining who's responsible and how do we get the client the money that would more justly compensate them for their injury or for their death. Yeah, and we've had cases, you know, we've got four, five, six times what the other lawyer thought was the policy limits. It can really work. Um, and so, you know, people out there either learn to do this or talk to someone that, that does if you have a situation like this because you're, you're not only cheating your clients, you're cheating yourself, your firm, your family out of a potential seven-figure fee on top of really changing someone's life uh, taking care of a client. And if there is one thing that I've learned in my uh, in the years since I've been practicing truck in truck crash in that area, um, it is that never take at face value that there's only a million dollar policy. I've seen companies misrepresent to other lawyers, including myself. They have tried to play me that there's only a million dollar policy. I've had federal disclosures come out that are signed and verified saying there's only a million dollar policy, take it or leave it. And I uniformly have said, no, I'm going to go through and perform all of the things that we as trucking lawyers need to do to rule out the other possibilities. And oftentimes to the benefit of our clients, we have found, you know, in a case where it was represented a million dollars, that there was actually a $90 million policy. Yeah. I had the similar thing. I had someone on a case where I did not see another entity that was responsible and they said they only had a million, they only had a million. I said, okay, well, if we take it, I need something under oath, under penalty of perjury saying that that's all there is. And if we find out later from anyone else that's there, you've told the statute of limitations and we can resue you. And lo and behold, there was a $5 million excess. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> that's not uncommon in my experience. And, and, but the reason that it keeps happening is because unfortunately people fall for it. Yeah. And so they don't hold the feet to the fire like you did in your case and demand what's going to protect your client. And so why not, if you're the insurance company, roll the dice and see if you can get out for a million when it otherwise would cost you five or ten million, uh, you know, if that's the compensation it would take to make a client whole. And uh, I want to kind of switch 
gears a little bit and talk about uh, how you got this knowledge. Because, I mean, I thought I was a pretty good trucking lawyer. I thought I was pretty much up on things. And then... And you are. You're one of the... One of the foremost experts in the field. I've learned a lot from you. But then I've learned about this other potential. I didn't know what MAP 21 was. I didn't know that you could hold the motor carrier liable as a motor carrier, not necessarily a broker, until I heard it from you. How did you go from, you know, I'm assuming you weren't in the trucking industry before you became a lawyer? No, I wasn't. So how did you go from being a law student that doesn't know anything about how trucking works to having this kind of knowledge? What was your journey? So... It wasn't so much that I decided I wanted to become a trucking lawyer, but it's, I think as every lawyer, you are chosen by your client. I think sometimes we forget that. So how I got started was a client called me and had a case where a uh, young man had been killed by a trucking company and no one had taken his case. They said it was too hard to win. And so... I spoke with, there were some recent immigrants from another country that had come over, didn't speak very good English, so the initial communications were kind of hard, but I said, you know, I want to try to help you. I um, sat in, I remember sitting in my office with them, and several of the family members came over, and so, you know, I, I agreed to take the case, and I, I said I was going to do whatever it took to try to, you know, win the case for them, and so they chose me, it was the clients, and so... You know, I made the commitment to them that I was going to learn everything that I needed to learn in order to try to win their case. And so um, when you make that commitment and you mean it, you're, you want to learn everything you can about how the industry works. And so you know, I started to read all the industry periodicals. I started to read you know, like regular, what? Well, Transport Topics is one of the big industry periodicals that keeps you up to date as, into what's going on in the industry, obviously you need to go to the regulations themselves and the comments to them that and understand how these regulations apply and how they overlap with the other industry documents like the you know, their training manuals that the truckers all get. Companies have safety manuals, they have safety protocol. And you, it's case specific, but you at the very minimum need to familiarize yourself with all of those uh, that are gonna be applicable in your case. And so you take that case on and you, you know, I probably take it a little further than I need to, but I'm just curious. I'm, I'm a curious person. I like to learn. And so that's what makes life worth living. Every day I want to wake up and I want to learn something new that I didn't know the day before. And I want to have a new experience. I want to make a new connection. Uh, these are the kind of things that I think make life worth living and the, the evolution of, you know, our species of, of humans, of making, you know, having the feeling that you're part of something bigger or something greater, which I think we have in the trucking group. We have the sense of community that we all share with each other freely. Joe Camerlingo is sitting over here. He's a huge share. Michael, you're a huge share. We all share our knowledge. And so I always learn so much when I come to a convention like this, and I love that. I love that we share and that we learn and that we evolve and that we, you know, ultimately are going to make the road safer through our collective knowledge and by applying it. That's what I live for. It is really good because, you know, I'll be honest, when I first started going to these kind of things back in 1997 uh, to try to learn to be a lawyer, a lot of the presentations were, this is complicated, this is expensive, you can't figure it out, you better refer it to me. Uh, and it, you know, it really turned me off. Uh, and actually it made me less likely to refer a case to that person. Uh, and now there is a real spirit of sharing, you know, the, if I think if someone's going to do trucking, there's 
if they can afford it in multiple groups, they should join. The, the trucking litigation group within the American Association for Justice is incredible, really good sharing. That's where we met each other. Uh, you know, Joe Freed and Mike Leuserman started their Academy of Trucking Accident Attorneys, and I think that they put on an incredible program and also really good at sharing. Um, there's other groups out there. AIEG, which is the product liability group. If you already do products, we do some trucking stuff too, although, you know, it's a little different. They're more of a, of a sh information sharing and not as much of a hands-on as uh, – I'm going to get in trouble because I'm on the trucking committee, but, you know, it's, it's a, and it's a more expensive, you know, it's hard to justify their $1,000, $2,000-a-year dues if you don't also do the automotive products. You can't be an auto product lawyer without joining that because they're invaluable. But, uh, you know, there is such a spirit of sharing and such a spirit of, you know, you don't have to get cut someone on your case. They'll still talk to you and explain, you know, to you. And although I, I'll be honest, uh, when I'm doing something new for the first time, I kind of like to have someone that's done it before sit in with me and, you know, I make a little bit less of a fee this time, but I'm not going to screw up, and we'll probably get a bigger fee to split up, uh, and then I know what I'm doing for the next one. Well, that, that's a great approach. And so it, the other great thing about being in the trucking group is that, you know, we do have this collective spirit of sharing. And I was never at a firm where I had a, a real mentor. You know, I, I had to learn a lot of things on my own, and, and that's a lot harder because you're going to have a lot more trial and error. And so once I became part of this group, I did have a group of mentors. I mean, everyone was sharing and was so free. You know, if you ever needed to pick up the phone and talk over an issue, you know, I could contact any number of great lawyers, the best lawyers across the country, and talk the issue through. And so, you know, and I do that as much as I can for anyone else who has the same need yeah. in an area that I can help. And so, you know, don't go at it on your own. Reach out to people, and, and they will they will help you. And you and I can say this now because it's been you know almost 20 years, and so the statutes and limitations on any malpractice I may have committed are long gone. Uh, but the way I got into trying to learn about trucking is I went to work for a personal injury lawyer, really good trial lawyer, but a general personal injury lawyer did not know anything in particular about trucking law. So we'd have some 18-wheeler cases, and we would work them up just like a car wreck case. Uh, and so I ended up on my own. I had a high volume. I had 100 to 200 files by myself with three paralegals, wow. you know, set for trial, three trials every week, you know, one, you know, try one or two cases a month. Most of them are, you know, minor impact, Cairo only, you know, just in trial constantly. And we started getting some 18 wheelers and we just put them in there like everything else. And I was having lunch with a, another lawyer and he was making fun of somebody. He goes, yeah, this guy's handling a trucking case. And he doesn't even know what the federal motor carrier safety regulations are. And he starts laughing. And so I just laugh with him, pretending, and, you know, go home and <laughs> Google what they are. And, uh, you know, hired an expert in my next case. And there was a guy named Roger Allen. said, can you teach me how to do this <laughs> uh, and, learn, and learn the regulations? And then just went on from there. But it just – I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was uh, – you know, we still did okay. And the thing is, they paid me more than they did on the truck on my car wreck cases. So I thought I was doing a good job, not realizing that I could have been doubling, tripling the value of those cases. And you know, I, I wish I knew uh, then what I know now. And I'm glad we have a group now that will actually share with with younger lawyers coming in, or even not so young, but lawyers getting into this field. Yeah, and and I'm very grateful to everyone that you know took me into this group and, and shared with me, and I learned a lot from them. Um, and you know, we. I like to think that we do the same for those that are, you know, new to the group that, that want help and, and want to reach out to us. Um, you know, if you ever have any questions, just feel free to call either Michael, myself, or anyone else in the group. And yeah, and anyone out there is a plaintiff's lawyer and wants to learn to be a better trucking lawyer, learn this advanced stuff, you can join our groups. If you do defense work, you can't. Sorry, but <laughs> we're not going to help you uh, beat us. Um, 
Uh, one last thing before we wrap up. Let's say someone does want to reach out to you to either ask advice or maybe even to, they'd like some help on a case. Uh, how do they get a hold of you? So they can do the quickest way to call me to do the quickest way to reach me is just to call me on my cell phone. That's 615-812-1351, 615-812-1351. My website is rightlawplc.com, rightlawplc.com. Either way, uh, shoot me an email or a text. My email address is on the website, and I'd be glad to talk with you. And also, if you didn't remember to write that down, if you go to Trial Lawyer Nation and look at the, at the page for this episode, uh, it will have Matt's contact information and a lot of his background about what an incredible lawyer he is. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you today. Thanks, Michael. I enjoyed it, too. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Matthew Wright. Be sure to turn into our next episode when we're going to have another attorney, Chad Roberts, with us. Uh, Chad's from Florida. He's been practicing law about 25 years, and he owns a firm called eDiscovery Co-Counsel. Uh, what he does is he comes in and helps lawyers with eDiscovery issues. So you have a case where the defendant has information in a database or on the cell phone, electronic trucking logs, emails, texts. Chad helps us figure out how to get that information, how not to break the bank while we're getting it, and how to actually use it and search through it. Uh, it's something I wanted to learn more about, and maybe you do too. He's got some great information to share with us, so I hope you can join us next week. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing hosts and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Callen and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.